It's uh, interesting to me that uh, James still manages to resist, as Reno says, the sense in which, you know, we we might see duty and obligation um, as, uh, you know, mere merely cultural constructs that don't have a moral content. I think he recognizes that they do have a moral content, right? So he's conservative in that sense, right? But he's also sort of inviting us to look beyond Henry James's, uh, you know, inviting us to look at you know, the complexities of human relation that that, uh, that still leaves open, that still need to be explored and understood if we're going to pursue right, genuinely happy, good lives, right? And he's he has a sense of the tragic. I've been comparing him to Austin throughout. You know, I, I think the interesting thing is about James is his sense of the tragic where he's continually seeing ways that we can fall short of this and pointing them out to us, right? You know, it, Reno says that uh, the muddy uncertainty, the foggy atmosphere of a slippery, ungraspable reality makes the ambassadors in the Golden Bowl, and I would argue also Washington Square, fitting novels for our own disoriented and opaque moral imagination, which believes that moral truth makes life beautiful and yet goes blurry on the edges. Hey, everyone. You are listening to Sacred and Profane Love a podcast in which philosophers, theologians, and literary critics discuss how literature can help us think more deeply about love, happiness, and meaning in human life. I am your host, Jennifer Frey. I am an associate professor of philosophy at the University of South Carolina. You can find me on Twitter at Jen Frey, and I'm also on Instagram at Professoressa Frey, and you can also find the podcast on Twitter. Our handle is at eudaimoniapod. In this episode, I am joined by Katie Carl, editor-in-chief of Dappled Things and author of the novel As Earth Without Water. She's here on the podcast to discuss Henry James' novella, Washington Square. As always, I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sacred and Profane Love. I am delighted to be joined by Katie Carl. Katie is the editor-in-chief of Dappled Things, which is a literary magazine of ideas, art, and faith. She studied English and creative writing at St. Louis University, and she recently released her first novel, As Earth Without Water, with Wise Blood Books. Welcome to the podcast, Katie. Thank you so much for having me on the show. I'm such a fan and it's such a joy to be here. Oh yeah, I'm excited. So let's talk about Dappled Things. I just kind of want to invite you to talk about where Dappled Things sits in the literary magazine landscape and what you're trying to accomplish there and sort of who you envision your target audience being. Sure. When Double Things was founded in 2005, the, the thought was that there are a lot of magazines out there, but there aren't very many homes for writing that's sympathetic to or open to faith, and particularly the Catholic faith in its entirety and fullness. So, you know, there, there's been pioneering work done, of course, by Image Journal, which takes a broader Judeo-Christian lens on, on literary writing. And we're really grateful to magazines like that that do those sort of projects, but we thought there was room for a magazine that would explore this specifically and particularly Catholic contribution to to, to American letters uh, and to global letters, really. We have editors who who are all over the English-speaking world, and um, 
and contributors from all over the English-speaking world. There's, you know, as we're exploring in our series of seminars on the Catholic literary tradition these days with uh, through our partners at Collegium Institute, there are Catholic writers globally who are maybe underappreciated here in, in North America, underread, understudied. So it's it's worth having a, I guess, a center or a home or a hub for, for this particular vein of writing. There's also a commitment that we have to thinking about writing in terms of the good, the true, and the beautiful, where you know, craft concerns are paramount, but also we're thinking about writing in terms of what goodness is, what truth is, what beauty is for an entire human life. Mm-hmm. So how long has Dappled Things been around? Uh, so the magazine was founded in 2005. I've been involved since 2007, uh, first as an associate editor and then as editor-in-chief. I've also contributed um, over the years. I took a step back when my kids were very little, and then I stepped back up as editor-in-chief in 2017. Are you mostly a print journal? We're both print and digital. So you can subscribe to the print and digital edition digital only or print only. And of course we offer sample pieces on our website so people can get a taste of what it is we do and see if they'd like to subscribe. Okay. Awesome. Well, I will drop a link to that in the show notes for this episode. I also want to invite you to talk about your debut novel as earth without water. So I, I have read this novel and as you know, I am, I am a fan, but I'm curious, you know, what your inspiration was for the story and the two main characters in particular. It's a kind of very uncommon love story. <laughs> <laughs> sure. So I, at first I just had the love story and I just had the characters in their early lives. The early drafts were more what you might call so there's the tradition of the Bildungsroman, which is the novel about the development and early lives of characters, their education, and so forth. Mm-hmm. This was specifically in the tradition of the Kunstlerroman, which is the German word for a novel about the development of artists. So James Joyce, a portrait of the artist as a young man, would, would uh-huh. Isaac Kunstlerroman. So would uh, Sigurd Unset's Jenny, um, which I was reading a lot at the time and kind of trying to imitate. So um, that too is a particularly uncommon or unconventional love story. She does some very unexpected things with it. So I I had the sense that their story wouldn't be conventional, wouldn't be, um, you know, sort of a a simple marriage plot story, um, uh, but would take them through some twists and turns. So, you know, I, I was working just on the part about their careers and lives as artists when in 2008 or so, I realized my male lead is going to run off and join a monastery. And that (laughs) really threw a wrench in my writing process, because what do you do when one of your main characters is taking a vow of silence? So, right. um, You know, I, I started to think about what his life would be like there. And as I wrote, I realized that his story was going to take him into, um, into contact, unfortunately, with the abuse crisis in the church. So I, I thought a lot. I read a lot to try to understand what that experience might be like, you know, and to try to, to come around to some sort of some sort of understanding there. And eventually, you know, what, what you see in the finished product is the, is the fruit of that attempt to wrestle with those you know, those difficult things. So you were writing this novel since 2008? 
even a bit earlier than that, I started working with these particular characters and doing short stories with them in college. You know, and of course, thinking of what I was doing as the the seed of a novel, but not really. You know, it never gained the kind of length or, or traction that it eventually had. I think it's a great novel, and we'll also put a link in that to the show notes. Um, okay, so you want to talk about Henry James? So why don't we start there? Really two simple questions just to get the conversation going. The first is who is Henry James, which probably most people have at least heard of him. And then the second slightly more interesting question is what is your particular interest in Henry James. Sure. So Henry James, I just love Henry James. He's an American writer who was active from about 1875 when his first novel, Roderick Hudson, came out to uh, the end of his life in 1916. He published something like 40 novels, maybe in the neighborhood of 100 books total in those years. I may have those numbers not quite straight, but uh, he wrote a lot. Seriously impressive. <laughs> it's a seriously impressive bibliography. Right. Um, so, and particularly, he's famous now for some of his more complex later works, which we're going to get to in a minute. But Washington Square is relatively early. It was written in 1881, the same year as Portrait of a Lady. He put both of those novels out in one year, which, as a working novelist, is pretty depressing, <laughs> but also incredible as an achievement. He's also remarkable for his discussion of life in America at the time versus life in Europe. He wrestles a lot with these themes of, you know, a a Puritan work ethic, specifically New England character that's, uh, you know, bound by duty and a very strict conception of duty versus the more European or old world style of character who's very comfortable with at home in beauty and leisure and pleasure and maybe not so concerned about needing to earn or deserve those things. And uh, these, of course, come into his conception of what a what a full and flourishing human life is. So I particularly love Henry James. I, I started out in college as a theater major, <laughs> which I, I was in pretty serious about uh, becoming an actress at the time, which is you know, in retrospect kind of nuts because, uh, you know, I, I, for a lot of reasons, but uh, Henry James went through a similar period where he was going to be a playwright, but he simply just didn't have the talents for it. In fact, his plays were so bad that there were people walking out during the second act of, of one of his his own favorites, which was a humiliating experience for him. But there's this absolutely wonderful passage that he wrote in his journal afterward, where he says, large and high and full, the future still opens. I may still do the best work of my life, and I will. And, you know, it's only after that experience that he writes some of the you know of his most beloved and well-known novels so I just find that particularly touching about him and then you know my interaction with him started when I was 19 and I was in my 18 I was in the first semester of college and I was in a production of The Heiress which is a stage play based on Washington Square there's a film of it as well that the play is extremely true to the story of Catherine and her family and her suitor, Morris Townsend, right? But my role in the play was that I was the Irish maid, Maria. Um, 
And definitely I didn't need to read Henry James in order to carry a tray or speak in Brogue better. But I did pick up the book Washington Square and just admire and adore this novel. I think there's so many folks who are interested in virtue ethics who finish the entirety of Jane Austen. Maybe they've followed the breadcrumbs from McIntyre to Austen and read her through that lens of developing a virtuous life. And then occasionally I'll have someone corner me after finishing Austen and say, I, I don't know what to read next. Please tell me what to read next. And I would always want to give them Washington Square. Um, because it wasn't Henry James' own favorite novel. In fact, he left it out of the New York edition of his, his novels toward the end of his life. But, uh, you know, I think it's as fine as anything by Austin. These characters are so finely drawn. You know, the the sharp wit and the keen social observation and the sympathy for characters who are at some kind of disadvantage in their in their social world. It's it's all there. So anyone who really loves Austin but has not gotten into Henry James, uh, I think, should start here. It's kind of a small novella, and and mm-hmm. I think it, it I think it came out as serialized, you know, stories before it was a book. But it it is a it's a pretty simple story. There's a father and a daughter, and the daughter has a, a rather large you know inheritance, and I don't, I don't think she ever has like a coming out party or something. But you know, suitors are calling, <laughs> and uh, her mother is dead. Mother died when she was quite young. So it's really just it's Catherine, the heiress, and her father. Do we ever learn her father's name or it's just Dr. Sloper? Dr. Sloper, I, I feel like we do catch the first name at some point. It's escaping right now. I don't remember what it is. He's <laughs> mostly Dr. Sloper. And then his sister is kind of meddling aunt (laughs) (laughs) yeah um and then of course there's this one suitor morris townsend um and i'm you know i mean it's interesting that you're comparing it to jane austen that's an interesting comparison i wouldn't personally have made that comparison but that doesn't mean that it's wrong it just it just means that i'm not really seeing the connection. So I wonder if you could expand on that because for me reading this, which by the way, I read this for the first time, I had not read this Henry James, you know, I sort of felt like the dad wasn't a great guy. It was sort of in some deep sense, unable to see or appreciate his daughter. He kind of sees her through a lens of disappointment, right? So basically she's not her mother. If, if, if her mother, if her dead mother, whom presumably she never really knew is the standard, you know, in her father's mind, she just fails to live up to it really in any sense, you know, she's not as beautiful. She's not clever. She's, but I mean, from her father's perspective, she's not beautiful. She's not clever. She's not intelligent. She's not interesting. She's just kind of there, (laughs) but he feels duty-bound to protect her interests Mm -hmm. and to try to protect her happiness. And so he kind of interacts with her in this overbearing paternal way, supposedly for her own good. But I think like it's a, I think it's like a big question. (laughs) 
whether or not he's actually maybe possibly destroying her life. And then there's this Morris Townsend guy who's the suitor. Dad doesn't like him. Mostly, I think, because he doesn't, he, he kind of screwed up his life. He, he doesn't have money. He lives with his sister or he lives off of his sister as the father would have it. And, you know, he just, he sees this guy as a striver who's going to use his daughter for his own financial gain and is going to make her miserable for the rest of her life. Doesn't really love her, appreciate her for who she is. And then there's like this meddling aunt <laughs> sort of has her own complicated reasons for pushing this Morris character. It's not, it's not clear the extent to which it's really about anyone's good other than, I don't know. She, she has her own special interests in this. So really like I'm reading this and I'm like, none of these people are great. <laughs> I don't think, <laughs> but, but, but maybe I'm missing something. And I haven't said anything about Catherine yet because, because I'm, I'm, because I'm honestly not sure. I mean, I think in the end, she ends up being the most complicated character of them all. I'd argue that by the end of the novel, Catherine is instantiating a kind of beauty in her character um, that no other character in this novel quite achieves. And it's precisely because she's been uh, the most committed to doing whatever her duty is as she sees it. I think you know, Dr. Sloper fails to do his duty by Catherine in the moments when he's most convinced that he is doing it because his duty is to protect her, right, from this supposedly adventuring character. And I guess we get confirmation from other characters that he is essentially right, the selfish person that, uh, that Dr. Sloper says he is. But selfishness doesn't necessarily, I guess, need to be a, a disqualifying factor for marriage. If it does, we're all in trouble, right? You know, there, there's all, there are all sorts of possibilities for that plot that are not robustly considered by Dr. Sloper. He has one and only one certainty about the outcome, which is that you know, if Morris marries Catherine and if there's any kind of financial reverse, then you know they'll be miserable together and to... Sloper's mind, that means that they're not, they're not compatible. There's not, you know, a certainty of a good match there. The question of judgment of character comes in too, in that he's so certain that he's judged Morris correctly. And he's also so certain that he's judged Catherine correctly, even though other characters in the novel are constantly offering him correctives. You know, his sister, Mrs. Almond, who we know is sensible, says to him, you know, you have this habit of regarding Catherine as an unmarriageable girl. You know, there's, there's no bounds. There's no bounds for that. She says, you know, she's, she's pretty enough. She's an heiress. She's, and you know, maybe Maybe she's not clever or brilliant or intelligent, but she's bright enough. She's sensible and she's good. She has, a, I think, at one point, the narration tells us that her talent is for goodness in the sense of loyalty and, uh, and dutifulness, right? So, you know, it's not as if Catherine totally lacks the virtues that would make for a decent marriage, even in some possibly difficult circumstances. I guess you could argue that she is... You know, she's not a she's not such a strong character that she could stand up to a, a husband who didn't have her best interests in mind. But then there's never any 
any proof that Morris wouldn't have her best interests in mind. There's just the judgment of Dr. Sloper and of Mrs. Montgomery. And of course, uh, I, I think James is using the comic relief of Aunt Lavinia to speak against an interpretation that would uh, put the best light on Morris. You know, I think there are more questions maybe than, uh, you know, than are totally resolved in the novel itself as to whether this could have worked. You know, I think, and the reason it's left so open is that we can have this sense that, that, yeah, there's a real sorrow for Catherine. She did lose a real potential good in not being able to, to marry the man she loved. You know, and that we have sympathy for her. And yeah, I'm just going to go ahead and give spoilers. But to look at the whole arc of the novel, I think it's important to to see that uh, you know she wouldn't be interested in any other suitor. She she does have offers from perfectly kind and legitimate and uh, worthwhile worthy suitors toward the end and she turns them all down because you know, of how great her sorrow has been right, over this but it, to return to my argument about her still kind of learning to instantiate this kind of moral beauty I think she has finally sort of taken a place in the you know in the kinds of stories that her society offers her to fulfill you know she finally takes on this role of sort of this spinster aunt to young society where she's sympathetic to these young couples who are at the beginning of their lives she listens to the young ladies when they tell her her problems you know the young men admire her and they don't quite know why she embodies something for them you know she stands for an ideal and even though it's not the necessarily the ideal that she hoped for she still manages to be a kind of model for the people around her so again I, I hate to kind of spoil the ending but if you uh, if you come into it I think there are still there's still surprises to be found in the way that this all turns out Henry James keeps us guessing the entire time as to exactly how the um, how the story is going to play out and why. Well, I mean, just to return to the father, I said Mm -hmm. that he is like unable to really see or appreciate his daughter. I don't think he really loves her. I agree. I don't think Um, he really loves her. I think he thinks he does, but what he acts out toward her is not love. And his attitude is often very bitter and very cynical in ways that she's not attuned to so it goes over her head but as readers we pick it up and it's very harsh yeah and I mean I think one of the things that sort of struck me in reading this is that there is the sense of the father being dutiful but in a way that is not virtuous Mm -hmm. because it doesn't track good really in the right way so Mm -hmm. if you think about love just on a very basic level Mm -hmm. you're thinking about attraction to the good right Mm -hmm. so you know when I love something or someone right I am attracted to some goodness in them right Mm -hmm. and that can be different. That is different, frankly, from just doing what you know you ought to do. 
regardless Mm -hmm. of whether you're like attracted to doing it, you know, Mm -hmm. Kant makes a big deal of this distinction and the groundwork for the metaphysics of morals. So he's like, yeah, you know, you might do something, you might, you might like do the right thing, but unless you do it from like reverence (laughs) for the moral law, or unless you do it, like, you know, he calls from duty, Mm. right. Mm -hmm. Which he thinks is like the highest moral way of acting. I do not, but (laughs) unless you're doing that, then you're somehow, somehow you have mixed or impure motives or something. And a lot of this just has to do with cons, like really weird concept of pleasure. (laughs) I just won't get into that. But the thing that really strikes me about Dr. Sloper is that he's not really attracted to anything in his daughter. He doesn't really see a lot that's good in her. So he just sort of acts from duty, right? In the Mm -hmm. absence of that attraction. It's sort of just like, well, I'm her father. This is my duty. I must look out for her interests. And he ends up like hurting her really, really deeply and profoundly, you know, so this posture of being dutiful isn't necessarily the best one. I think Mm -hmm. when it is divorced in the way that it is in this particular character from his like vision of, of what is good, what is good in his daughter, what's actually lovable about her. And it seems to me that his major failing as a father is his failure to find anything good about his daughter. When, as you say, other people find plenty to love in her and he cannot. Right. He's seeing her always through this lens, as he said, of his dead wife. And she's always coming up short in that comparison. And precisely, he's not willing to see Catherine for for who and what she is. Rather, she's always being seen as, you know, sort of this... uh, Right, this unsatisfying substitute, which is really tragic in a way. I think James makes us feel that tragedy in their in their interactions. I mean, they come home early, even from. Forgive me, I may be remembering the film and the play instead of uh, the novel itself. We don't actually get very much of their trip. You know, when they return from Europe, that part of the uh, twists and turns involve a trip to Europe in the middle, which you know, Dr. Sloper takes Catherine on to try to distract her, to try to pull her away, to kind of weaken the connection between her and Morris. You know, and he brings, in the film, he brings her home early, even because it's it's completely ineffective. She says, on page 156 in my edition, you know, he's taken me, you told me, she says to her aunt, it would serve him right if she, if he should take me to Europe for nothing. Well, he has taken me for nothing and you ought to be satisfied. Nothing has changed, nothing but my feeling about father. I don't mind nearly so much now, she says, how he 
how he treats her or what he thinks of her marriage, she becomes determined at one point that she's going to go through with it, regardless of his opinion, regardless of whether she receives his inheritance, which is a live question throughout the novel. Is she going to receive the inheritance that's supposed to be hers? And Dr. Silver is determined that he's not going to give her the inheritance if she marries against his will. Marrying Morris would be against his will. So, And Catherine's... uh, he was certain that it doesn't matter after this trip to Europe, but she realizes that it doesn't matter not because the money doesn't matter in some sort of you know high-flown idealist way. It doesn't matter because what it represents or what it should represent, you know, his love and care for her. There's sort of no underlying grounds for that, really. He doesn't have the kind of affection for her that would be arguably part of his duty to try to cultivate as a parent and to try to affirm who she is as a as a person, not in comparison to some deal that has nothing to do with her individuality or her her soul, if you will, but you know, as as herself. And she, you know, she seems to have the moral intuition that if that's not present, then it doesn't matter if she gets the inheritance or not. And of course, Morris disagrees. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't know how much of the plot we should really get into, but it, it doesn't seem like Morris is a good guy either at, sure. at all. Like, sure. He does He does seem to be selfish, right? It, that seems to be the keynote of his character is his selfishness. And that's instantiated through his having run through a fortune already, you know, in the, in the terms of his society, he's, some, he's sort of done this in wrong order, you know, instead of uh, setting out to make his, his career and then finding a nice girl, then getting married and then sort of spending an enjoyment and, and, uh, and pleasure together, right? He might have on his grand tour. You know, he's done the grand tour first, and he's he's run through the small trust fund that he had, right? He's uh, he likes to be what they call idle. He, you know, he hasn't chosen a profession, and that sort of makes him suspect, right? In comparison to his cousin Arthur, who's you know, it sort of made his own way in business already. Morris is quote-unquote looking out for something. I don't know. I think we're supposed to read that as code for he doesn't really want to work, although he could if he did. And eventually he doesn't escape from the need to to go to work. He actually ends up going out west, which of course at that time is the... uh, It's like the the gold rush, right? Doesn't he go to California? Exactly yeah. right. This is the stock thing for sort of disinherited or you know, wastrels to do, <laughs> um, you know, or, or younger sons right, who you know who don't have a, an inheritance of their own, right? So it's not that he necessarily wouldn't work if he had to, but uh, I think the insight that Mrs. Montgomery has about him is that he would be cruel if he had to work for his own fortune as opposed to having somebody support him, right? And, you know, the fact that she's been supporting him, Mrs. Montgomery has, sort of speaks to, I mean, that's the strongest evidence in favor of his his actual selfishness as opposed to having done the tour, which of course is you know, something that 
Dr. Sloper does as well, but with his wife. So there's a there's sort of a key difference. Or enjoying the cigars and the brandy, which Dr. Sloper also does. But you know, there's a sense that because he's worked for them, he's he's earned that, right? There's nothing un undutiful or you know, unearned about about that pleasure. Where for Morris, he's sort of very willing to let others be the ones to pay for whatever it is he takes for his pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, um, so a contrast between Catherine and her father that really stands out is that Catherine actually loves her father. <laughs> so she admires him and looks up to him and trusts him and really wants to please him. She does not want to displease her father which is ironic because almost everything she does displeases her father. (laughs) And it's almost like the more she tries to please him, the less she succeeds. And I mean, just to get back to this comparison that you made with Jane Austen, I mean, is she sort of the admirable moral exemplar in the story? You know, I think she's more on the order of a character like Fanny Price, who notoriously is, you know, people are divided about Fanny Price. You love her or you hate her. I think Catherine is a very similar kind of character. She's the kind of character who, you know, later that year in the preface to The Portrait of a Lady, which is kind of a a foundational text for the art of fiction, James will say, you know, I, I couldn't quite get myself justified in writing a whole novel about a character like this until I realized that when we look at the world, this is realistic, right? He says, how absolutely, how inordinately the Isabel Archers and even much smaller female fry insists on mattering. Certainly Catherine is among the smaller female fry here in this in, in this evaluation. But I think uh, James is, you know, he's... Uh, having the insight that the moral actions and choices of someone, even this insignificant, really matter and really can change the picture of an entire group of characters that are clustered around her, that her dutifulness, her goodness, her love make a a genuine difference, right? She even has this insight herself in the sort of her interior life, her interior processing, she thinks she could at least be good. And if she were only good enough, heaven would invent some way of reconciling all things, the dignity of her father's errors. That's interesting. And the sweetness of her own confidence, the strict performance of her filial duties and the enjoyment of Morris Townsend's affection. And of course it doesn't turn out this way, right? We're not going to get the characteristic Austenian happy ending for Catherine, but, uh, you know, I, I I would argue that in you know in the way that she's depicted, there's a kind of beauty in her loss that you know, is sort of a tragic beauty, right? At the end of this at the end of this novel that we're brought around to, and I think yeah, she is a kind of exemplar, and not in the sense that she's someone you know we necessarily want our lives to turn out like Catherine's, but she has such dignity in the way that she carries. But what does happen to her? Yeah, there's a scene at the end that is sort of very revealing of of all the characters in the sense of like literally revealing their characters. (laughs) And she's definitely the only one who retains her dignity, I think. 
And I think it becomes clear that she is a character who is very hurt in in some pretty deep ways, but who doesn't use that pain and that disappointment as an excuse or a reason to hurt other people or to be incredibly bitter or mean. In fact, she's, I don't know, she's almost this kind of regal figure in the end. Very, very self, yeah, yeah, very self-possessed by the Mm -hmm. end. (laughs) And so she's someone who, I don't know, I makes use of her suffering or it kind of transforms her in a way that is kind of admirable, really. I I would agree. I would say, and particularly in the places where she's been most wounded, you know, it's these men and women who are about to get married that she finds are most drawn to her and want to come and tell her their troubles in a way that, uh, you know, Lavinia, who's our comic relief throughout the novel, sort of wants that role, but she's so silly and so, you know, romantic and so unrealistic in her picture of what that would mean that, uh, you know, she's, she's constantly trying to push herself into that role throughout the novel and she never succeeds in, in achieving anything of, of value. But Catherine, without uh, pushing herself at all, you know, just by suffering through what she, what she suffers through you know, finds that people are drawn to her and finds that she has something to to offer, right, to, to these people, to these men and women who are going through the same same and similar kinds of things. You know, and of course, those stories will come out in all kinds of various ways, but as they play out, Catherine's able to be there and play a role and be a comfort to them in a way that I think if she sort of pushed away her suffering or sort of, you know, allowed it to make her egotistical as, as Lavinia does allow her grief to make her egotistical, right. That she wouldn't be able to offer them that. Yeah. I, I, I find this aunt character, it's almost like she wants to live in a soap opera or she wants to be a part of some drama um, because she's like bored or I don't know. I, I sort of find her incredibly meddlesome. I don't, I don't find much to, I don't find much to admire in the aunt, to be honest. But she's um, sort of a way station between Mrs. Jennings and Mrs. Norris, right? Mm, right. <laughs> she's yeah. sort of maliciously helpful. <laughs> yeah. Well, she is. Yeah. I mean, it's like, she's, she's behind the scenes, you know, pulling strings and trying to make things happen. Um, but it's, it's all one, in. Yeah. yeah. No, go ahead. Yeah. There's one particularly hilarious scene where um, if she's talking to Morris, she keeps pushing him, pushing him to try to be more active, be more insistent, you know, sweet Catherine away, elope with her. Right. And, uh, you know, secret marriage by night. She, she was Mrs. Benjamin herself is the grieving widow of a reverend. Um, they were, they were in love and, you know, they were very happy and, you know, she is sort of uh, in her own shallow way. She's very sad about that loss, but she keeps reminiscing about this one time when they married, you know, he married a couple by moonlight who were running away from their families. And she says to Morris, I, you know, I wish you were still alive so he could do the same for you. I could do the same for you. I can help you. I I can't marry you, but I can, I can watch. (laughs) It's just absurd, right? That she's trying to involve herself in their, in their relationship in this way. She does almost end up 
pushing them apart. I think Dr. Silver says at one point, like Levenny is capable of ruining even a very good cause right? <laughs> right. by her, by her support for it. Definitely the role that she plays. Um, it's sad, but it's very funny also. <laughs> so let's talk about this Rusty Reno essay, yeah. Judy, the soul of beauty, Henry James on the beautiful life. This was something that I read in preparation for this podcast. Yeah. So, I mean, this theme of of duty, as someone who's interested in virtue, I think of duty as kind of a, a secondary moral concept, sort of secondary mm-hmm. to the good, you know, the good being the, the primary, the primary thing that we're after in, you know, in the in the happy life, the diamond life, we are striving to live well and realize human goodness and to you know, love what is truly good and beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, duty is is a part of that specifically related to justice and the common good. And so, of course, when we're thinking about the family, we're thinking about a society in which notions of the common good figure and, you know, there are things that you owe your parents as a child and there are things that parents owe their children and siblings and et cetera. So, so like duty is there, it's important, but I don't think it's primary in the mm-hmm. way that, you know, modern moral philosophy tends to take it to be, you know, it seems to me that James is kind of stressing duty as, as kind of the, the primary moral, moral I don't know, lens or the, the primary moral concept. I mean, I almost wonder if that's a difference, frankly, between him and Austin, or if maybe, maybe he is more interested in virtue. I don't know. What do you think? Sure. I think he's willing to sort of take some complicated ways to explore what it might mean to have a duty to something. I think it's really example that interesting that Reno uses the example of Chadwick Newsom and Lambert Strather at the end of the ambassadors, right? He's actually saying that has a responsibility, has a duty to the woman that he's been having an affair with because she's given up so much for him, right? It's a very strange notion of what duty might be, right? And it sort of does Rather than uh, you know say that there's a duty for him to go back to America, make a ton of money, and marry a beautiful young heiress, right? you know, which would be sort of what he would be considered to have a duty to do by his family, by that society, right? You know, Strather is very insistent that Chadwick has a duty not to uh, sort of not to abandon this woman who sacrificed for him, right? So, so it's a complicated picture of what duty means, right? Because, you know, Strether has this sense of right and wrong that's been shaped by spirit and consensus and well at Massachusetts, right? But, uh, you know, he sees and is disappointed by the moral wrong in the affair between Chadwick and Madame de Vinay. But he also right willing to say that the, the right thing isn't necessarily to, you know, cut everything off. The right thing is to you know, stop exploiting her, you know, to to honor her and to stand by her, right, and to support her now that she's sort of 
you know, sort of laid herself on the line for him. So it's a, it's a sense of duty. If it's a sense of duty, it's not one that's strictly deontological, I guess, if that makes sense. It's not solely defined by what the prevailing society would say is the right thing to do. It's defined by complex duties, you know, moral duties that are in, you know, taken up by people's individual relations to each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Reno kind of sets it up in the following way. There's sort of this modern impulse, which he associates very strongly with Oscar Wilde to an extent that I think is Mm -hmm. actually unfair to Oscar Wilde, but like set Mm -hmm. that aside for right now. (laughs) Sort of this idea of, you know, the good life as self-expression and self-creation And so the fundamental value is autonomy and personal freedom to sort of, you know, be yourself, right? Mm. So find your true self and live authentically, you know, Mm. and that James kind of rejects this, which, yeah, I mean, that, that seems, that seems correct. You should reject that. I think that's Mm. basically um, a ridiculous way of looking at the world, though common enough. (laughs) Um, I don't think that's actually what Oscar Wilde was on about, but again, set that aside. So, and then he says, you know, by contrast, Henry James characters, you know, develop a strong sense of duty. And that seems true, but also to a certain extent, maybe not super illuminating because again, Mm think about Dr. Sloper, like he has a very strong sense of duty, but actually he's a terrible father and he's not terrible because he, you know, has, he's not like Lord Henry Wotton terrible, you know, he's not just (laughs) wantonly selfish and out for pleasure. And it's not that kind of terrible. There's so many ways to be wrong, unfortunately. And only one way to be right. But he is terrible in the sense that he's not a loving father. Right? So somehow he's like a dutiful father without being a loving father. And it turns out that's maybe a nightmare. And so I guess maybe what I don't see in the Reno, in Reno's analysis, but what I do see in Henry James is not just duty, not just a sense of being dutiful, although there is this sense of duty present, but the need to, you know, the need to fulfill your duties from a position of loving the good, you know, sort of recognizing or or somehow situating your various obvious duties as a daughter, as a father, as, you know, a potential spouse, whatever, from this position of being attracted to and appreciating what is really and truly good. And that is the stuff of virtue, yeah. right? Yeah. Not just respect for duty, or, or that's actually the stuff of virtue of cultivating your loves so that they mm-hmm. track what is really and truly good. And as you said, he has a duty as a father right? To find what is truly lovable in his own daughter. And of course he fails when he fails to recognize that and he fails miserably to do it. 
I mean, he simply can't find anything good about her, even though it's plainly there. Right. It's really interesting because throughout his novels, and I think especially here, um, Henry James' moral sense is bound up with his sense of the duty not just to do, you know, do right and do unto others as they you would have them do to you, but a, a duty to see clearly, a duty to have a, a clear vision of what is true. And you know, I think Dr. Sloper, where Dr. Sloper fails, he fails in that duty. Very early on, we're told about him that he was so enchanted with his wife because he had, quote, an idea of the beauty of reason. And he's sort of, Henry James isn't afraid to sort of paint Dr. Sloper as a misogynist. He goes on to say, if this idea of the beauty of reason was on the whole meagerly gratified by what he observed in his female patients, his wife had been a reasonable woman, I'm just quoting, but she was a bright exception. And it set, this is really important, a limit to his recognition at the best of Catherine's possibilities. So the way that he feels his duty toward Catherine is bound up with the way that he sees her and he sees her as just this sort of vulnerable, you know, easily exploitable, not very pretty, not very worthy young woman, you know, where she does have good qualities that he completely misses, right? And he doesn't offer her an opportunity to develop those qualities or to see for herself. You know, he, he just sort of comes down and says, no, this is what I, this is what I see. And therefore this is how it is. And this, therefore this is what we're going to do. And, you know, it's more complicated than that because it's not to say that Catherine would necessarily be happy with Morris. You know, certainly there, there's plenty of danger in that direction. Right. But, uh, the way in which he's wrong, he's not wrong necessarily about Morris, he's wrong about Catherine. You know, he's wrong about uh, her ability to, right, to, to be happy right, and to, to be good and to give something to right, the society around her, which of course is what she proves herself capable of in the end, despite every, every obstacle that's thrown in her way, right? But Dr. Sloper's duty, right, is to see the good in Catherine and affirm it. And he he definitely fails in that duty, even though maybe he fulfills others variously defined. Right. Yeah. I mean, and he, I mean, I feel like he harms his daughter or it seems like he harms his daughter in part because he's not interested in what she wants. So he's not interested in listening to her or taking her wants into account. It's really just about through various external pressures, mostly financial. (laughs) He's really about manipulating her to get her to do what he thinks is best for her. Now, there is not particularly virtuous. <laughs> no, not at all. I mean, he it's a, it's again, it's a failure to love her. I mean, obviously as a father, he I mean, I think he genuinely does think that this guy is bad for his daughter and he does want his daughter to be happy. However, his assessment of what will make his daughter happy is not based on meaningful interactions with his daughter in which he listens to her and sees her for who she is and takes her into meaningful account. It's just sort of like, this is bad for you. 
And if you can't see it, then I'm just going to manipulate you into doing what I think you ought to do rather than engaging in any kind of joint deliberation (laughs) um, where there's like a recognition that the other person has a say, and then you actually try to persuade them rather than just manipulate them by pulling various strings. I actually think the ant is incredibly manipulative as well, just in a completely different, more fatuous sort of way. Oh, sure. She's she's emotionally manipulative, but in ways that are kind of comical and ineffective where Dr. Slippers are more forceful and more... Calculative, yeah. Exactly, exactly. And yeah, to the extent that they are driven by a genuine sense of of duty, again, I think it's a, a sense of duty that's, that's blinkered by inadequate perception. Right, yeah. Yeah, is there anything else you want to say about either the Reno piece or, you know, his ideas of duty in general? Um, I, I'm interested in the way that the Reno piece sort of takes into account right the <laughs> the the sense of what Henry James is always sort of doing this push and pull between more conservative New England morality and the sort of European morality that would be shaped by more Catholic influences that, uh, you know, would see, you know, a, a life of leisure and aesthetic beauty as not necessarily opposed to moral good, where there's more stringent opposition placed between those two and um, you know, the morality of, of Bullitt, Massachusetts, and, uh, you know, uh, even the, the New York of Washington Square right this particular novel um it's uh interesting to me that uh james still manages to resist as reno says the sense in which you know we we might see duty and obligation um as uh you know mere merely cultural constructs that don't have a moral content. I think he recognizes that they do have a moral content, right? So he's conservative in that sense, right? But he's also sort of inviting us to look beyond Henry James's, uh, you know, inviting us to look at the complexities of human relation that that, uh, that still leaves open, that still need to be explored and understood if we're going to pursue right, genuinely happy, good lives, right? And he's he has a sense of the tragic. I've been comparing him to Austin throughout. You know, I, I think the interesting thing is about James is his sense of the tragic where he's continually seeing ways that we can fall short of this and pointing them out to us, right? Reno says that uh, the muddy uncertainty, the foggy atmosphere of a slippery, ungraspable reality makes the ambassadors in the Golden Bowl, and I would argue also Washington Square, fitting novels for our own disoriented and opaque moral imagination, which believes that moral truth makes life beautiful and yet goes blurry on the edges. So he's he's calling attention to the ways in which even very perceptive characters can often 
be self-deceived about their real motives, can miss important things, can miss you know, vital things about each other. In the edition of Washington Square that I have, there's an afterword by the poet Donald Hall, who calls this out about Dr. Sloper that his perception is, you know, it writes so well trained, right? Uh, that uh, he can get a person right on first glance. He says 19 times out of 20. And Hall asks, well, what if the 20th case is your own daughter, right? Well, what if the person you get wrong is someone so close to you that uh, they getting them wrong makes you know, your entire life you know, less beautiful and less good than than it could have been, right? And so Reno and James and Donald Hall are all pointing us in the direction of, you know, in in order to you know, live a genuinely good life, we need to be directed toward finding out the actual truth about the human person. And James is always taking us deeper into the mystery of character. Um, so I think that's above all what makes him you know, a novelist for our time and surprisingly fresh every time I read them. Well, there's there does seem to be an implicit distinction at work between spiritual beauty and physical beauty because mm-hmm. one thing we know about Catherine is that she's not she's rather dull apparently not just in personality but she's not a beautiful woman. She's not physically striking. She's not ugly. We're told that, like, Mm. I think on the first page, like, she's not ugly. She's not hideous, Mm. but like, Mm. she's not a looker either. Mm. Or there's nothing elegant or refined about her appearance aside from maybe her clothes, but even those are criticized at various points. Then there's also, I mean, we haven't really talked about the trip to Europe besides to mention Mm. that it was a failure, but one thing that her father was hoping for, and this was another in a series of, disappointments is that his daughter wasn't transformed by encountering beautiful old Europe in the way Mm. that, so he's like, she wasn't like taken in by the art or by the ruins or, you know, these Mm. romantic, beautiful aspects of the old world. And in a sense, like his dad just kind of gave up. He's like, well, she just doesn't she doesn't understand beauty or something. It's not having this effect. It's not taking her out of. It's, not, it's like, it's almost like he's imagining she's going to encounter the beautiful in Europe and it's going to, you know, it's this transcendent thing that's going to pull her out of her current unhappiness and it's going to fix everything somehow. And it doesn't do this. Right. And her father apparently does have an appreciation for the beautiful things. Mm-hmm. And yet it's his daughter that is beautiful in the moral sense that has the beautiful soul and it's her father that doesn't. So I just wonder like what, what is really going on there? I mean, whatever it is that he's trying to say about beauty, it seems rather complicated. Yeah. I would agree that he's trying to complicate this relationship between readily apparent beauty and beauty that's kind of buried deep in character. Um, And I think it's 
it's doubly interesting because he makes Catherine's character sort of difficult to get at, but he does tell us early on. Um, I would relate it back to his initial description of her, where he says that she was irresponsive, not because she didn't respond, you know, or, or have a, um, an intuition about these things, but because, she, you know, I'm quoting, she was shy, um, uncomfortably, painfully shy. Um, she sometimes produced an impression of insensibility. In reality, she was the softest creature in the world. So it's not that she's not taking in these impressions or having a response to them, but she's not able to communicate that she's you know, there's this sort of barrier between her and uh, you know the external world like whatever beauty she has is is deep in her character you know and is a function of her her ability to uh, right be be true in the sense of loyal to to others right maybe less so to herself she may be you know coming for some criticism because she's more diffident than she should be or more more closed off right certainly whatever whatever beauty there is in her character is not immediately apparent on the surface and it's only it's only through the suffering of a difficult experience that that's brought out where others can see it and I do just continually find it interesting that, you know, by the end of the novel, she she is drawing these other characters to her. She has several other proposals, all of which she rejects. And she has all of these people coming to her to sort of ask her advice where, you know, before I think no one would have dreamed of doing that. Right. You know, she she's... Uh, sure. And, uh, you know, there, there may be some, I, I guess, failing and not being immediately responsive to right, the, the actual objective real beauties of, of art and culture and um, right, in history. But uh, again, I wonder to what extent is she actually not responsive and to what extent is she just not able to externalize that response because of the radical coldness that her father's you know, bringing toward her. And, you know, you can't help but realize that the trip he's making with Catherine is the same trip that he made with his wife on his honeymoon. And of course he's very, he's going to be very caught up in that memory. I would say that he's not particularly healed from that, uh, that loss. Even so the, you know, at the very beginning we learn, you know, that he's, he's bearing the scars of that loss for the rest of his life. You know, he's never quite the same. So, you know, even his response, there may be some incommunicability there from him to her, as well as from her to him. Right. Uh, you know, she, she's not uh, going to be able to respond, you know, naturally necessarily she's not going to be able to respond with the same kind of delight and you know total joy that uh you know bright on her honeymoon was there's something very sad and sort of um distanced about uh right about the the thought of them you know doing this trip together yeah that uh you know she's she's not going to be able to um to communicate what she sees and thinks and feels to him because there's already this, this history between them of him not particularly caring what she sees or thinks or feels, right? And, of course, comparing her constantly to, to her mother. I think the Europe trip is just one more way that he, he does that and she comes up short, right? 
Right. Yeah. No, that's, that's very insightful. Thanks. Okay. We're going to have to wrap it up. So last question, what is your favorite Henry James novel? That's tough. I love The Portrait of a Lady. I love The Ambassadors. I have a a particular affection for The Golden Bowl, as difficult as the prose is, because the the conclusion is so lovely. Let's see. I I, I have particular um, affection, too, for The Aspirin Papers, Um, if only because, you know, the the thought of getting your hands on the secret letters of a, you know, of a romantic poet is uh, is (laughs) a thrilling conceit. And then... um, uh, I also love The Beasts in the Jungle, which goes deeper into to James's you know, sort of perennial themes of duty and desire and renunciation and and self-enclosure and loss. Right? Excellent. All right. Well, thank you so much, Katie, for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such fun. You have been listening to Sacred and Profane Love, a philosophy, theology, and literature podcast that is generously underwritten by the Institute of Human Ecology at the Catholic University of America and produced by Catholics for Hire, a group of young Catholic digital content freelancers. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Just go to www.patreon.com slash eudaimoniapod to become a monthly subscriber. For our next episode, I will be joined by Thomas Hibbs, who is professor of philosophy at Baylor University, and we will be discussing Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Until then, friends, be well and keep reading.